Okay, I'm glad you're here, and um, I'm actually very excited to to discuss this topic because it's a very, very big topic in Torah, and um, there, I, I once heard Rabbi Green refer to certain topics in, in Torah, comparing them to certain um, uh, music, classic music um, compositions. They're called, uh, if I'm pronouncing this properly, uh, virtuoso pieces, meaning to say there's certain classic uh, compositions that that musicians can sort of show who they are by by how they play these particular pieces. Um, I know uh, I know that in in, in Torah, so you, you have uh, r- roughly speaking a- an equivalent. There are certain landmark pieces of Torah where all of the commentators have unbelievable, interesting, and very different things to to uh, add. And as to try to explicate um, what's going on. So, so the piece that I'm referring to right now, it's in Parshas Chukas, and it deals with um, really the, the, the death, if you will, of, of, of Moshe. And, and by death, I mean the, the death decree. Meaning to say the incident where Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock and is told that he can't bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And Aaron too, by the way. Aaron is, is together in this decree. So, so in, terms of, in terms of what actually happened, what Moshe did wrong, well, we know the, the very basics, and maybe we'll go over a few more details. But the, the, the very, very basics are, God said, speak to the rock, and it's going to provide water. And Moshe instead hits the rock. Actually, he hits it two times. And then it's just game over at that moment. So... So they're about, I don't know, there's, someone was just telling me seven major different um, approaches, I'm sure there's more, but as to what Moshe did wrong. Now that in itself is kind of interesting because the Torah explicitly tells you what, more, uh, what, what, what Moshe did wrong. He hit the rock instead of speaking to it. So, so it's, it's, it's interesting that it's a, a mystery that it's even a mystery, but, but nonetheless, nonetheless, Everyone is trying to analyze it from different angles, including from the angle which is, was this a fair punishment? Because, you know, people are really, I know people cry about this, and I've talked to many people who are just, that this is a turning point in their growing up in terms of relating to the Torah itself. How could it be that that Moshe gave everything for the Jewish people, for God, for just gave everything, was willing to, to give up his life many, many times, how could it be over this seemingly minor thing? He can't bring the, the he can't go into Israel. Can't bring the Jews into Israel. Um, people approach it from another angle, which is how could it be that uh, Moshe, who absolutely did everything exactly the way God told him to do it, and that's his greatness. By the way, there's a beautiful medrash, which is that um, after. After Moshe comes down from uh, getting the Torah at Mount Sinai, uh, the Sutton comes to him and, 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 and says, and to test him, and says something like, look what you did, you know, like trying to celebrate Moshe's greatness. Look how fantastic you are. And Moshe just greets him by saying, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? You went up to heaven, you brought down the Torah. I really, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and, and basically... Basically, I, the word denied is, is the wrong word, but, but didn't take any credit, let's say, for any aspect of this, this singular feat that, that Moshe accomplished. And because Moshe took no credit for it, after that, they said it will be called Torah Moshe for all time. In other words, if you've divested your ego from this process entirely, now it can be named after you forever. So there's this amazing dynamic. I don't want to call it a paradox because it isn't a paradox, but, but it's a fantastic dynamic where you see, um, if you look at things across an eternal landscape and you really broaden your perspective, you see how humility actually can lead to great fame. Because normally speaking, we associate self-promotion with fame. <laughs> but here you see by someone actually taking no credit for something, they become the most famous person ever. So it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, so, so again, 
Many, many, many questions. Why did Moshe do it? Was it a fair punishment? Um, what actually happened? So, so people are coming at it from all different angles. And, um, and so I would like to <clears throat> discuss this event from an angle that, that I haven't seen um, discussed before. So this will be my approach, for now anyway. Um, I, I heard... Uh, I heard... Um, my dad told me this story, which is he, he was friendly with an artist um, named uh, Rico Mikeska, who was kind of a contemporary of Picasso's, but never, never achieved that level of fame. He was a, a Czech modern artist and a, a friend of the family. And actually, his, his wife, Greta Mikeska, I grew up with when I was a little kid. She was a uh, already older, probably in her 60s or 70s or something like that. And um, I, I remember sitting on the beach with her as a little boy in Ischia, which is like a little island off of, uh, <laughs> off of Italy, near Sicily. And her drawing seashells on a, on a pad for me uh, on the beach. And um, anyway, she, you talk about um, six degrees of separation, Right, so how we're all kind of connected to different people in just if you if you know people's uh, personal histories. So she was she was taught by uh, by Max Broad and Kafka. So I'm I'm two steps removed from Kafka. <laughs> so if you know me, you're all three steps removed from Kafka. So you can file that away. So anyway. Her, her, her family was very wealthy and they had a salon in their, in their, in their house and all the intellectuals came to their house and um, uh, Kafka lived across the way and she could see his house through her bedroom window and I'll never forget this, she told me that all the girls in the neighborhood had crushes on him which I thought was very interesting since, you know, just from my limited standpoint just knowing very little about Kafka I always imagine him to be you know, sitting alone in a room someplace and not, not being sort of like the, the teen idol of the neighborhood. But nonetheless, he, he had a following. So, so uh, she said that Max Broad, who was his executor and his best friend, taught her Plato's Republic, her and her sisters. And, um, and, that, uh, and Max Broad actually was the one, if I'm not mistaken, who um, didn't burn all of Kafka's writings was charged with burning all of his writings uh, upon Kafka's death and didn't. So, and he was a, a, an amazing artist himself. So the reason why I bring it up is because her husband, Rico, who was the painter, um, painted a portrait, actually a couple of portraits of my father, and spent years painting and repainting and repainting and repainting and never would accept that, that it was a finished product. And... Um, and he, I don't know if my father told him or if he told my father that there are other artists who paint something and they sign it and they date it and the point being that this is me today, right? Whereas others, like, they can't let go of it until it has achieved this level of perfection. And so a lot of times um, that, that, that road ends in madness, by the way. <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, there is an idea that you sign it, you date it, and it's like, that's me today. So, so I want to tell you, uh, with that very uh, rambling introduction, I, I, my, my thoughts on Moshe hitting the rock, but this is me, 2013, you know, maybe I'll tell you something later on this afternoon, something that's different. Um, but what I'm struck by is the context and I guess that's, um, I'm going to try to add a, a, a few new, new ideas, but, but I, I'd say perhaps the, 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 the biggest thing that I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting is, that, is, is, a, is a context for, for hitting the rock. And, um, and, and it's, it's as follows. Because if you, if you just sort of imagine, well, we're traveling through the desert, and we're traveling through the desert, and there's this event, and there's this event, now Moshe's hitting the rock, now Moshe's not going in. That's kind of the way it's taught, right? But, but if you look more carefully, 
And I'm going to reference the Art Scroll Stone Chumash here on page uh, 842. But I'll tell you where it is if you want to look it up. It's in, in, in Sefer Bamidbar, the, the book of Numbers. And it's chapter, it's between chapter 19 and chapter 20. Something major happens. You can't see it. There's nothing spectacular on the page here, like a large letter or a small letter or something like that, or a big white space. Nothing, nothing like that. It's very, very sort of shielded, very hidden, really. But something major happens between chapter 19 and chapter 20. Okay, by the way, the, um, and, 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 and it's the following thing. Uh, 38 years pass. So, so, remember, they're wandering the desert for 40 years. And they spend the first year um, at Mount Sinai. And then as they're leaving Mount Sinai after the first year, heading toward Israel, and that's just supposed to be a few days, and you get into Israel, and, and, and here's now a major headline, so keep this in mind because this is, this is big. Moshe leading the Jewish people into Israel is basically associated with the end of days. In fact, there's a, someone was just telling me the other day, there's a, a Zohar that says that Moshe is going to be resurrected and lead the, the Jews into Israel. So that, that's going to be part of, I guess, the, one of the end of days scenarios. You know, so I don't know how that works exactly. I know that, that according to the Or HaChayim, that the soul of Mashiach is going to be composed of a combination between Moshe and, and David HaMelech. So Moses and King David are going to basically combine to be the Mashiach. And by the way, Ari, who just was here a few moments ago, when I, when I told him that, he said that if you add up the gematria of Moshe and David, it adds up to Mashiach. It's one of Imakolel. Uh, if you just add one, it, it adds up to Mashiach. So that's a, it works even on, on that level as well. So, but anyway, the, the, the main thing that I want to share with you is that, that, that the spies come, and then there's the decree of wandering that the whole generation has to, to tie out before we get to go into Israel. Now, at the beginning of this Pesach, so this is chapter 20, verse 1, the children of Israel, the whole assembly, and those words are important, I'll tell you in a moment, arrived at the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people settled in Kadesh. All right, now it's going to go on. The, the Pesach continues, but let's just stop there for a moment. So, so why, why is that important, that it says the whole assembly? Because Rashi points out that the whole assembly means the whole assembly now that's ready to go into Israel. All right? In other words, 38 years have passed. That generation has died out. The decree of wandering, remember, the, the, the decree of wandering now basically is over. Now we just got to get from where we are now in the desert to Israel. Now again, let's just reset for a moment. Why, why is this so significant? Because we're back on track at this moment. Okay? Meaning back on track for... For, for the completion of history. Because if you, if you go with this teaching that Moshe leading the Jews into Israel was going to be the grand wrap-up, but we had this like a couple of you know, major misfires along the way, worshipping the golden calf, okay, that seems to be not an issue right now. The spies, the whole generation having to die out, it's died out. Moshe's still in command. All right, we're good, right? We're good? We're good. We're good to go. So, so now, in that context, now we have to look at the hitting of the rock. Because now this looks like, because apparently, Hashem has something very major in mind to do this miracle before the people before they're about to start the final home stretch of going into the land. God has a, a very clear miracle that he wants to propose and, and 
to, uh, to put before the Jews that seemingly, and I'm going to add another idea, why, why, what is new about this idea? In other words, speaking to the rock, you're going to speak to the rock, and it's going to give forth water. Why now? Okay, so, so the, the simple answer is because Miriam has just died. And, and that's the rest of that Pusuk in the beginning of chapter 20 after the 38 years. I'm going to continue within that first Pusuk. So I'll start from the beginning. The children of Israel, the whole assembly, right? And remember Rashi says, meaning that everyone was now ready to go into the land. All the dying from the sin of the spies had finished, arrived at the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people settled in Kadesh. Miriam died there, and she was buried there. All right? Now, this is still within the same Pasuk, the same verse. There was no water for the assembly, and they gathered against Moshe and Aaron. So now the scene has been set for, for this great miracle that, that Hashem wanted to perform for the people. I'm going to explain what the miracle was supposed to do and, and why, perhaps, God wanted to do this miracle now. So, so just, again, for background, uh, there were three great miracles that were ongoing through our trek through the desert. There was the man, the... the we call it bread from heaven, but it wasn't bread. It was the way Rabbi Akiva explains it in, in Gomorrah Yuma is it was condensed light. That, that's, that's like angels like feed off of light. And, and when you condense the light, it made it into this substance called man or in English mana. So, so that was in the merit of, of Moshe. The, the Ananiya Coven, these were the clouds of glory. This was in the merit of Aaron. And the water, this well that followed them around in, their, in the desert, this was in the merit of Miriam. When Miriam dies, all of a sudden they don't have water. And they start complaining. And God says, okay, now Moshe, take your staff and speak to the rock. So, so some people say, and I think of all the explanations of this event, this is probably the, the least uh, persuasive <laughs> I'll throw it out anyway. I don't even know if any major source says it, but I've heard people say it over the years, so I'd like to just bring it up and whatever. Maybe he got confused, because last time, years ago, God said, take the staff and then hit the rock with the staff. Now God is saying, take the staff and speak to the rock. So that would suggest that somehow Moshe tuned out mid-instruction which kind of upends the whole idea of Moshe, right? So Moshe, I think, was really paying attention every time God spoke, you know? So for him to just sort of like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got to take the staff. I got it. I got it. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. You got to speak. No, I got it. So it's like, it's, it's, it's hard. I don't want to, maybe someone very great said this, in which case what I'm saying right now is a tremendous act of disrespect, but I don't, I don't, see, I don't see that particular point. You know, there's certainly enough explanations if you want to choose a, a, a different path of understanding this. So, so anyway, so now, now I want to add something new. Okay. So, so again, the context is, the context of this whole event is the Jews are now finally back on track, ready to be led into the land of Israel by Moshe, which means, which that is synonymous with the end of days. Now, why would God choose this moment now to make this tremendous miracle? And, 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 and Hashem seemingly gets very upset that this sanctification of his name isn't made. So what, what was the sanctification that was supposed to be made? So, so Rashi brings it out, is that, is that Moshe was supposed to speak to the rock, and then, and then the rock was going to start gushing water. And people were going to come to the following Kavachomer, the following logical deduction, which is this rock, which needs nothing from God and is inanimate, obeys the word of God. How much more so I, who am actually animate 
and need God for absolutely everything, how much more so should I listen and obey the word of God? And that, that wasn't made. That sanctification did not get made. And if you think about it, it's a, it's a, that is like a very powerful kind of thing if you can think like, you know, like if you look around you, like these tables, right? These tables are supposed to stay still. And they do, right? But I think that they stay still because they don't have legs. And they don't like run around, right? They're not alive. But, but what if this... In other words, it says that, it says that after davening, Rabbi Nachman says that a person after they finish praying should look at the sky and that that imparts wisdom. And I heard an explanation why that would be is because in, in the beginning of the creation of the world, God told the heavens to remain set and that the heavens till this moment are still following that instruction of God. In other words, billions of years later, Billions of years later, the heavens, it's like God just said it. They're still like staying firm, right? So that's, you know, the, 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 the Ramban answers a question that, that people ask to this day all the time. Why aren't there more open miracles, right? Like there used to be. And somehow they, that's, that imparts a lack of belief to a lot of people. Where's the splitting of the seas today and everything like this? Okay, so you can argue there are many miracles going on, but, but the Ramban approaches it from a very, a very uh, exacting place. He said, God made these miracles. What, he's got to make them all over again just for you? He already made them. You know, like... So, that's at the end of Parsha's bow, if you, if you, if you want to see that. But, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. But the idea that when God does something, he does it for absolutely forever. And that we have to be kind of aware of the fact that God is actively shaping and guiding absolutely everything, even something like the sky, which just looks like, well, the sky is the sky. Right? No, the sky is actively obeying the word of God to this moment and has never stopped once it was told what to do. Now, now I haven't said the thought yet, so let me, let me just say it now. Why did the spies give a bad report about Israel? And again, many explanations. But there's a very intriguing explanation, and I've heard this, uh, like Chabad is is very strong on this explanation. And um, they say that that the, the spies loved the way the Jewish people were with God in the desert. Meaning to say, they could just contemplate God's greatness and be spiritual creatures, essentially, forever. Your needs were provided for you. You had the manna. You had the water. You had the clouds. You had Moshe. You had awesome teachings. You had revelations of godliness. You didn't have to farm. You didn't have to make a living. You didn't have to deal with, um, you know, reality as we experience it in all of its kind of materiality and physicality and hardship. And so as a result, it seemed like you could live a more idealized life in the desert. So, so, they, so they spoke against the land because really they were advocating a greater level of spirituality. Okay, this is, this is a, a famous defense of the spies. And could be, by the way, real. I mean, that could be 100% true. Okay, so now, now the Jews are about to go into the land. And the man's going to stop. The clouds are going to go away. The well is going to go away. We're going to have to depend on rain coming down. And there's a correlation between, you know, our level of worthiness and when the rain comes down. And so all of a sudden, life is going to become dramatically different in the land. 
like a major paradigm shift is about to take place. So now, given that, it makes sense to me that Hashem would want to create this major sanctification of when the Jews go into the land, that, look, even the rocks listen to me. Can you imagine? Even the rocks listen to me. Even You, you think that rock is just kind of sitting there by the side of the road because it hasn't got like a tennis lesson today? <laughs> you know? No. No. That rock is doing its job right there, staying right there. And that bit of sand, right, with the tiny little green shoot sticking out through it, it's exactly doing its job right there. It's not just sitting around. In other words, all of physicality, all of materiality, all of the, 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 the actualized material universe is actively obeying the word of God. It's not just sitting there. Now you're going to go and inhabit this environment and everything around you now, if the miracle had been done properly and the level of sanctification had done, been done properly, where the whole people said, wow, even a rock listens and a rock doesn't have to listen. And by the way, just to give you a little more support for what I'm trying to say here, there are a few times in the, in the whole Torah where a large space is condensed into a small space. So, so here it says that... Um, um, yeah, so Pasuk number six. Moshe and Aaron went from the presence of the congregation to the entrance of the meeting. Oh, no, no. Wait a second. Uh, where is it? Okay. Oh, here it is. Number 10. Uh, Moshe and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock. So what it says is, if you look at the commentary there, Rashi says that he gathered the entire congregation, meaning the millions of people that were there, right? Before the rock. How can you gather hundreds of thousands Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in front of a rock. It wasn't a mountain. It was a rock. So a miracle was done here. And there are a few other instances of this in the Torah. Where a, a, the entire congregation is able to gather at another time at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Different times. Uh, one time when, when uh, whether I, I forget it, whether it was Moshe or Aaron, throws uh, soot into the air to begin one of the plagues, it says that he took two handfuls and he put it into one hand. How can, you, how can one hand hold two handfuls by definition? <laughs> you can't. So that was another example. But the point is, is that if Hashem made a miracle that everyone should have a front row seat at this, obviously God really wanted to bring out a very big teaching, No? So again, I'm just saying that to, to emphasize. So the, the question is, why? What was such a big deal about this rock thing? And so what I'm suggesting is, is that now, again, just to review, so we, we've got our context. Now that Moshe was back on track, the generation had died out. They're ready to be led in. This is the, the big wrap-up of, 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 of history. And now we're going to do one more miracle before we go in. And what's that miracle going to be? It's all gathered together in front of the rock to show you that the land that we're entering into is also a spiritual place. It's going to be a different kind of spiritual place. Not like the spies, like wanting to keep you here in the desert. It's going to require a different aspect of avodas Hashem, of serving God. But you're going to be amidst physicality and you're going to have to do a lot more. But every single thing in front of you is going to be like your Rebbe. Can you imagine? Like, all the rocks are my Rebbe's. Why? Because all, look how perfectly this rock is, a, is, is keeping to the word of God. I've got to keep to the... You, I mean, talk about role models, right? Every rock is going to be a role model when you enter into the land now. If the sanctification had been done properly. Every tree is going to be a role model. 
And then you go, oh, I got to be on my best behavior. Look how beautiful this tree is serving God. So how can I serve God any less? Right? So this is, so, 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 it's going to be the opposite of what the spies were saying. The spies were saying that we're going to go into, our, into the land and we're going to lose our spirituality because we're going to become so involved in, in, in trying to produce bread and, and, and rain and all these other things. But no, God is like, no, 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 no. It's going to be awesome. You're going to go in and it's going to be like a whole other thing. You're going to transform physicality. It's not going to be a distraction. Okay. So what goes wrong? (laughs) Only everything, right? Everything goes wrong, basically. Everything goes wrong. Everything. Literally, actually, everything goes wrong. All right? Now, I want to now shift gears for a moment and again approach this from what I think is perhaps a new standpoint. And I want to shift back to the, the second day of creation uh, to provide a, a context for this now. You see, there, there's something that's, that's very uh, telling right at the beginning of this, of this uh, uh, episode. Miriam died there and she was buried there. There was no water for the assembly and they gathered against Moshe and Aaron. And then Pasuk 3, verse 3, the people quarreled with Moshe and spoke up saying, and they start complaining about, about leaving Egypt, being taken out of Egypt. But the key word there is quarrel. They start fighting with Moshe. Now, let's go back to the second day of creation for a moment. That is where it says the, the upper waters were separated from the lower waters. Okay? And... This is a very, very mystical aspect of the creation of the world. And there's a lot of Kabbalah on, on, on the second day of creation. And um, I'm going to tell you something that the Ramban says. And what's interesting about this is that the Ramban says that you're not allowed to speak about any of these mysteries because they're so deep, okay? Now, he then comes to say what, what I'm about to share with you. But what's so striking about this, because it's a very far-out thought, is he obviously didn't even consider this one of the mysteries that he's referring to. So whatever I'm about to tell you, it's way, way deeper than this, okay? So, so what he said is, the, what was the separation of the upper waters from the lower waters? That was the separation from the purely spiritual, the supernatural, the extraterrestrial, right? Separating that from the actual physical dimensions of the universe. That's what it means that, when, that God separated the upper waters from the lower waters, okay? And now remember, when we talk about the, the if you want to think about what does it mean, the, where does the physical universe begin? Um, so it begins at the farthest, farthest, farthest reaches of outer space. So that's the beginning. That's, don't, don't think in your mind, okay, well, that's probably the spiritual thing at, at that point, right? No, no, no. That's the beginning of the, the physical aspect of, 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 of our universe, okay? And now the, the, the spiritual then starts beyond that, all right? Now, he says that, that's, he said, that, that I can say, because that's not even, <laughs> then he says, no, no, don't get into the secrets now. So this is, okay, so that seems pretty, Amazing that that's not even considered like one of the secrets. But, but anyway, that's the separation of the upper waters and the lower waters. So it's the, it's the creation of, of the universe, really, and, and the spiritual worlds. Because remember, the heavens are also a creation. Okay? That, that's important. Because God doesn't just live in the heavens. God inhabits the entire universe, which is the heavens and the earth. And then God exists dimensions beyond the heavens. Okay, it's not just that the the heavens might be a more um, the abode of his glory, if you will, meaning that he's more revealed there. But that's not the extent of where he dwells. He dwells beyond that even. So again, the heavens are a creation, the earth is a creation, and and God separates them 
and that's the separation of the upper waters and the lower waters. Okay, so that's an interesting perspective, but it's not the point I wanted to make. The point is the following, which is that they say that this second day of creation, that it's, it, it's telling because it's the only time of the seven days of creation where God doesn't use the word tov, which means good. So why doesn't God use the word tov there? And they say because you have separation. And separation is another way of saying machloket, which means argumentation, which means fighting. See, anytime you have separation between people, separation within a community, separation, that it hints that there's something wrong. Interestingly, though, um, just on another point, but it's important, sometimes separation is good. And I'll give you an example. Divorce is actually one of the 613 mitzvot. And the reason why divorce is considered a mitzvah is in order to preserve shalom. In other words, it's for the sake of peace that they're moving apart. So if that's really the intent, then that's the idea of it being a mitzvah, right? So that's, that's, that's an interesting perspective. It's not like, okay, these two guys are fighting like cats and dogs. All right, we agree. They can go away. No, no, no. It's a, there's, it's a little more elevated than that. Right? So, so in other words, sometimes separation can be for the sake of peace, and, and that's true. But in general, when you've got separation and, and argumentation, then it's something that's supposed to be avoided. Right? And, um, of course, we just had the, the Parsha of Korach right before that, which is the headquarters of the understanding of, of, of argumentation in the Torah. But anyway, let's, um, let's get back to this. So isn't it interesting that in the very first discussion about the, about the waters, we've got the headquarters of quarrel and dispute. And over here, what happens is, they're coming to Moshe and they say, where's our water? And it says that they quarreled. So here you have this co- correlation between water and quarreling, right? Fighting. And then if you think about it, a little bit earlier on, after they leave, after the, the sea splits, which is another one of these tremendous like ironies in the Torah, the sea splits, which shows God's mastery over everything, including water, right after that, they say, it says that they didn't have water for three days. <laughs> so it's like, again, it was another test. But God, after showing his, his mastery over everything, including water, all of a sudden there's no water. So obviously, again, it's a test. And again, they quarrel. Now, now, I want to show you something, okay? Now we're going to get deeper, okay? So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who is a great Kabbalist and in the line of the Vilna Gon, like uh, I think one or two generations from the Vilna Gon, but received his, his Kabbalistic Masor, his traditions, um, I saw in a, in a book of his that he talked about the letter Aleph, okay? And the letter Aleph, is composed really of three letters. There's the Yud, above, and then there's a, a Vav, which is diagonal, and then there's the Yud, below. And he said that, that the Yud, above, refers to the upper waters, and the Yud, below, refers to the lower waters, and then the Vav refers to Torah. Okay? So... So because the Vav is six, and six are the six orders of the Mishnah. That's Shas. So that's, that's the Vav. And he develops this at great length. And I actually gave a, a detailed talk on this, if you want to hear that. It's called Pronouncing the Unpronounceable. It's actually one of my favorite talks, if you, if you get a chance to listen to that. By the way, all, all these old talks on my current website, which is uh, TorahOnItunes.com, um, it's very hard to find the old talks, but there is a search mechanism. And if you... If you put in some keywords, you'll get all the, you know, like a couple of hundred or more old, old talks that way. So um, anyway, so, uh, so, so you have the, the Yud, which is the upper waters, the, the other Yud, which is the lower waters, and the Vav, which is this connection. Now, now, the idea is that through Torah, which is that Vav, you can bring down this higher level of light down into this world. Because remember, water and Torah are the same. So the upper waters are like the higher levels of revelation. 
and you draw them down into this world through Torah. Okay. Now, the first time there's a quarrel by the waters, this is after the splitting of the sea, God tells Moshe to take his stick and to hit the rock. Take the stick, yeah. take the stick, and to hit the rock. This is after the splitting of the sea, at, at Mara. So, and, and, and the water gushes. Right? That was the first time. Now, look, isn't it interesting that the letter Aleph, that Vav, that also looks like a stick, doesn't it? So you've got the upper waters, and then you've got that vav, which is the stick, which Moshe uses, and then you've got the lower waters. That comes out. So that's, that's my thought, okay? Now, just because I'm, I'm just saying that because we're going over Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, so I don't... You know, uh, Rav Eli Chaim, uh, Rav Shlomo's twin brother, said to me one time that a, 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 a Rebbe once said to his chassid, I'll make you a deal. You can say your, my Torahs in your name just as long as you don't say your Torahs in my name. <laughs> so I, uh, I just want to make it clear when he's talking and when I'm talking because he, he may not appreciate my ideas. So, so anyway, um, so now, now, now we have this problem which is that Moshe now is supposed to take the rod in his hand, as instructed by God, and speak to the rock, not to use it. Now, this is really interesting. And Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, and I, 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 I will love him forever just for this one teaching alone, which is, everyone says, well, is caught up in the question, how could Moshe have hit the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock? Everyone's caught up in that question. But no one asks the question, what was Moshe supposed to say to the rock? <laughs> so he asks that question, and he says he was supposed to teach it a Mishnah. So he was supposed to teach the rock some Torah, and then the rock was going to give over water. Now, that's really cool. That's really cool. Now remember, Torah and water are, are the same. And I guess maybe the idea on a very deep level is that if God created the world through the Torah, right? If, because remember, the, the Torah existed 974 generations before the world existed. That's, that's what it says in the Talmud. So, and, then it, and, and our tradition is that God combined the letters of the Aleph base and created the world with them. So what does that mean? The different... E- I, the way I understand it is that each of the letters of the Aleph base represents a different energy wavelength. And God was combining these energies to create the world, right? So that means that there's Torah in absolutely everything. So if Moshe is speaking Torah to the rock, and the rock is responding with water, that means that somehow the spiritual is becoming the material. The Torah that Moshe is teaching it is becoming manifest in its physical form, which is water. In other words, there's this flow that's happening where the Torah, which is embodying everything, is becoming manifest. It says that when, when God commanded Adam and Chava to name all the different creatures... Because this was before we ate from the tree of knowledge and the world was crystalline, it was free of any impurity, that Adam and Chava could, or Adam, could look into any creature and see the energies that were animating it. So, for instance, he could look at a tree and he could see the ayin energy and the tzadi energy, which spells eights, and he could just read it and say eights. So, in other words, the, the, the Torah energy was becoming manifest. You speak... I'll give you a a better example. Rabbi Wolfson talks about how really in the generation of Noach that the Torah was supposed to be revealed. And Noach, we know Noah, Kabbalistically speaking, is later reincarnated as Moshe. And 
How many days was Moshe on Mount Sinai? 40 days. How many days did it rain and the flood come down? 40 days. 40 days of what? Water. What's water? Torah. But because the generation wasn't worthy to receive the Torah at that time, the Torah came down in its physical form, which was water, and wiped them out. So now, look how that process is being reversed right now. Moshe is supposed to speak Torah, and it's going to come out of the rock as water, but in a healing, beautiful way. Because everything is filled with Torah, and it's going to be all activated now. Because we're getting to a place right now where all of physicality is about to be raised up. The rocks and the trees are going to become my rebbies. We're going to go into the land and we're going to look around how everything is obeying the word of God. How much more so do I have to? Now even this Torah is turning into water. So now, look at it again, the letter Aleph. Maybe this is what Rabbi Yitzhak meant. I don't know. But maybe this is what he meant when he said, the upper Yud is the higher waters. The Vav is the Mishnah, the six orders, Shas, the six orders of the Mishnah, which also means Torah, the Torsha Balpeh. And the bottom Yud is the lower waters. So, so what was Moshe supposed to do? Teach the Raka Mishnah. That Vav, that, that Vav in between in the, in, the, in the Aleph stands for Mishnah. So in other words, you'll teach it Torah, and that Torah will turn into the lower waters. You'll take the higher energy, transform it, right, with a Mishnah, with Torah, and that will become physicalized as water. Hopefully that's clear. Um, so it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And now we're going to start to wrap it up a little bit. We have to figure out why it doesn't happen. And there, there are some beautiful explanations. I just saw an amazing explanation in, in Eish Kodesh, the uh, Piyasesna Rebbe. There's a nice English translation of it called Sacred Fire, if you want to get that. It's deep, though. You, know? it's, you have to concentrate when you read it. But it's, it's so intense. Um, to really do him a great injustice and just to paraphrase a very, very lengthy, amazing uh, uh, piece from him. He says that Moshe wanted to come down to the level of the Jews by making this mistake because Miriam symbolized the, the ability of desire, of wanting things. And now she was gone, so that energy to desire and to want wasn't there anymore, wanting that extra closeness. See, because he's saying that you have to understand that on some level, even when you do a mitzvah, where did your desire to do the mitzvah to come to begin with? Also from God. Right? So we like to take credit for anything that we initiate, but sometimes we only initiate it because God, in his goodness, allows us to initiate it. But then there is ultimately a base level where we do genuinely do initiate stuff. And that's the power of Miriam. And now once Miriam was gone, who's going to really initiate on behalf of the Jews? So Moshe has to come down from his level and make a mistake so that he can play that role to be the generator of desire for the Jewish people to come close. That, that's what he says. It's a, it's a very amazing idea. Um, but anyway, I'm going to say something different. And I heard in the name of the Rambam, it's on a more simple level, but also very, very powerful. And from Rabbi Shlomo too, that, that what happens is the people, now remember, there's another generation here. So now, again, let's get our broader context. Remember, Moshe's leading the Jewish people in. This is the big wrap-up right now. There's one more sanctification. I don't know, maybe there are more sanctifications that God wants to make, but right now he wants to make a very big statement about physicality. And, and perhaps I'm suggesting, because of the fact that they're going into the land, and the physicality of the land was, um, was uh, demeaned before the Jews as a vehicle for, for, for closeness, right? So perhaps that's, that, that's why this miracle was taking place now, I'm suggesting. Okay, but let's keep another thing in mind. 
which is that because the whole generation of the people from uh, uh, the, the spies' rebellion and everything like that had died out, you now have a new generation that's there, including many people who were not at Mount Sinai, by the way. They were born in the desert, okay? So this is a different, you know, a different generation. Now, one of the amazing things about Torah is, is passing it from one generation to another generation. And it's, you know, and we're all teachers and all of us are, in terms of friends and, and everything like that, any impact that we do. But, but that transmission from generation to generation is, is very, very intense. And, that, gen- and that, that transfer has to take place now. Now, can you imagine if you talk about, oh, the new kids, right? Oh, they don't understand. The new, the, the new generation, they don't understand. Now, this generation, can you imagine you say to your kid, yeah, man, oh, but I guess you weren't at Mount Sinai. Yeah, I guess you didn't see that, you know? Yeah. But that was a real thing. And it's sort of like, or you're never going to understand because you weren't at Mount Sinai. And then, believe me, these are kids who grew up with mana falling out of the heavens. What are they supposed to think? You know, they don't play at other people's houses where the mana isn't falling from heaven, you know? Oh, you don't have Shabbos, do you? You It's like, no, this is all... Everyone's got mana. This is normal. So you think... We would think, yeah, but they had mana. But... You know, in fact, the, the Chassam Sofer says that the, the, the blessing they would make on mana, although there's a disagreement whether they made any blessing on mana, but according to this, the blessing that they made on mana was hamotzi lecha min hashamayim, meaning, you know, blessed are you, God, who brings forth bread from the heavens. And that was a normal occurrence for them. Okay? So, so there is an aspect of spirituality that this next generation didn't have, so they're much closer to us in a way. In other words, if you want to think about it, this was, in a way, the great divide. You know, because aren't we kind of that generation, that next generation? Because we're also surrounded by absolute miracles. But we go, oh, yeah, okay, so you hit send, and it goes to China in, <laughs> in a nanosecond. Or you look up the word, you know, Picasso, and you've got, you know, 400 million entries in 0.003 seconds. You know, Google tells you how long it takes to come up with all the, uh, the, the uh, links. And those are miracles, but we go, yeah, okay, but that's just normal, right? So, so, so this is us, is what I'm trying to tell you. This, is, this next generation in the desert, that's us. Now, we question Moshe. And, 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 and we're like, well, how are you going to get the water? We're thirsty, and now Miriam's gone, and it says that they didn't even appreciate Miriam and what she had done in her greatness and everything like that. Now how are we going to get water, and we're all going to die, and this is, ah! And then Moshe gets seemingly angry, and he calls them Morim, which is translated as rebels. I saw another translation, which is fools, Right? He basically yells at them. And I heard in the name of the Rambam that that was his undoing. And Reb Shlomo, I heard him say this over, that basically, I'm putting this in my own words, but this was the spirit of what he was saying, was that he had somehow, somehow wasn't the one that this next generation needed because he wasn't able to relate to them in the same way, because he got angry at them. And of course, Moshe is forever, and Moshe is our teacher forever, but there was a disconnect here. And... Who said this? Uh, well, I heard that from Reb Shlomo, and... And he was referencing the Rambam, who, who seems to say that because Moshe got angry, that that was what the sin was, more so than the hitting of the rock. His, his getting angry at them. And I just want to say something on a practical level that comes off of this, and then we'll, 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 we'll end. Which is, we have to be very, very careful when we teach Torah to each other, especially to people who 
who don't know Torah, which you know, can be compared to children, and, and especially, certainly, to children, not to become angry and not to become impatient. Because you see here that something very fundamentally went wrong when, when anger became an ingredient in the teaching. And the Kutzker Rebbe says that you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? And so a lot of times what happens, if we're just going to zero in and get real for a moment, let's say I'm having a Torah discussion with someone, and let's say that they don't agree with what I'm saying. They've got, they're questioning all of my premises. They say, oh, really there's a God? Oh, how are you so convinced? Oh, and really he revealed his will to us? How do you know? You know, and challenging everything that we prize and hold dear and, and basic. God is one? Really? And you have to be very careful in those instances. And you can't become angry. And I'll tell you why. Because if you become angry, what's happening, well, a lot of things are happening, but one of the things that's happening is that oftentimes you're turning the discussion about ultimate truth into a discussion about your own ego. And, and you may not even be aware that this dynamic is happening. But your anger is sort of like, who are you to challenge me? This is something that I have paid a lot of attention to and I have devoted my life to. And you're telling me X? And, and so two conversations are now taking place simultaneously. One, where you're trying to very persuasively argue the truth of what you're saying, but what's really driving that is, how dare you insult me? <laughs> and I promise you that will never end successfully. Because even if you win, you lose. Even if you win, you lose because you might actually be sophisticated enough to make the other person concede your point and they will leave hating you. So you might think, well, at least I won the argument, but can I tell you something? These type of arguments, none of this, no personal transformation can be accomplished through winning an argument. You have to inspire someone to see a more perfect world, a more perfect version of themselves, and then to want to dedicate themselves to that and to strive toward that. That's the only way there's any quote-unquote success. And, and it doesn't happen through, through beating someone down or through insulting someone. And so if you, if, if you find yourself being challenged, you, 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 can, you, can, you can say, I don't know. This is, this, is, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. This is, this is how I understand it. You know? And, and that's it. Because any, any version where you have to try to um, actually convince the other person, it's, it's, it, 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 it will fall short. So, um, so anyway, um, that's... Uh, That'll, that, that'll be the end for this talk. And, and Hashem should bless us that we should just be able to give over in, 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 in a very beautiful way. In a way that inspires other people and empowers other people. And also that we should be able to, on a very deep level, make a rectification for the sanctification that, that Moshe, for whatever reason, wasn't able to accomplish in the desert. That, that when we walk through life, we should look around us and see how that wall isn't like collapsing or like deciding to turn into like, you know, a bucket of fish or, 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 or something like that. that. That everything actually seems to be listening to God around us and obeying its, the will of its creator. And if everything around us is obeying the will of its creator and it has nothing to benefit from it, how much... More so, we who need the beneficence of God, 
should listen to God. So that wherever we go, we should see everything, even the inanimate, as our greatest teachers. So a couple of points came out um, after the after the talk, and I, I just want to just add them. Add them. Uh, actually, one point that I, I didn't make that that I wanted to make was, again, um, what, what I'm suggesting is that the this entire event um, of Moshe hitting the rock has to be seen through the context of the generation of the desert finally dying out. Uh, you know, the in other words, the, the sin of the spies is now has been rectified. And the new generation is going in, led by Moshe. And so, the, again, this is the, the wrap-up of history. That, that's sort of the premise of all these teachings. Now, with that in mind, I think it's very interesting to note that Parsha's Chukas, which is where this, is, this whole event is situated, has one major chunk before the episode of Moshe hitting the rock is discussed. And that, 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 that's how the Parsha begins. And um, it explores one theme, and then it goes on to the... To the, to the incident with Moshe. And what that's talking about, very interestingly, is the, uh, the paraduma, uh, it's called in Hebrew, which is, uh, means the ashes of the red heifer. Now, amazingly, what, is, what are the ashes of the red heifer? And the answer is that it removes the impurity of death. There are special waters, like, for instance, a, when a person came into the Holy Temple or the Mishkan, the tabernacle, in order to uh, bring an offering, they had to be in the state of ritual purity. And, and according to Torah, anyone who's had contact with the dead or had contact with contact with anyone who had contact with the dead is in a state of uh, what's called tumas mes, which means um, impurity from the contact with death. And so you need this, these special uh, waters the, from the, which is made with the mixing in the ashes of the red heifer to remove this level of impurity. And, um, and so now you can go into the, the, uh, the holy temple or whatever it is. But again, it's the, it's the removal of the impurity of death. Now, now, now think for a moment, because it's, it's really, it's quite perfect, actually, that if this is Moshe about to bring the Jewish people into Israel, which is the next next event that's being discussed, which is going to be the end of days. Isn't it interesting that the Torah brings you the formula for the, Im, for the removal of the impurity of death right beforehand? In other words, one of the things that we know from the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah, and, and just from all of Torah teaching is that when the world reaches, reaches its state of rectification, with the resurrection of the dead and, and everything like this, people are going to live forever. In other words, there will be no more death. Death will be swallowed up, in the words of the prophet. So, so the, the event that takes place right before Moshe is about to lead the children of Israel into the land is the removal of the impurity of death. Okay, so that's, um, that's, that's, that's point number one. Point number two is kind of like um, going off the how I ended, just in terms of communicating with another generation. I just want to discuss that a little bit more uh, at length and just show how that connects with um, perhaps the, the hitting of the rock or, or the not hitting of the rock. But anyway, just very quickly, you have to understand that um, every generation has its own shorthand, has its own reference points. So if you think about it just on a very, you know, here and now level, let's say you watch television um, and uh, there's sh certain shows that you grow up with. And well, the next generation doesn't grow up with those shows. And let's say in the generation that you grow up, the, there's certain shows where there's some, let's say, stupid characters, right? Hilariously, you know, idiotic characters. And that, those become icons for you in terms of, you know, what it means to get everything wrong. Well, the next generation has different, different reference points, different icons that, that signify the same idea that you have, but it's a, it's a totally different thing. And different jokes, which you may not even laugh at, but which they find hilarious, and jokes which you found hilarious at one point that they may not. Now, since each generation grows up with its own 
peers, you use this shorthand, and of course this goes to every aspect of life, you know, whether it's a classmates or, or um, movies, music, everything, historical events, things that you've lived through, family events, things like this. And you use that shorthand, and here's the key word, successfully. You successfully use those reference points and that shorthand with your peers for most of your life. But there comes a certain point where you'll use that same language with a group of people that won't understand you. And it's not because they're being um, rebellious or willfully abstruse or contrary. It's because they don't have the same associations with those keywords that you do. They simply don't. What does sacrifice mean? If, if, if someone from World War II or who grew up in the Depression or who, you know, was in, you know, in battle, used the word sacrifice, and then I use the word sacrifice, I mean, I might talk about not going to Starbucks this morning. I, I have to make my own, no, or worse, I'll, I'll have to have instant coffee. Right? That's my sacrifice for the day. When they use the word sacrifice, they're talking about, you know, who knows what they're talking about. Something very, very, very different. So the point is, is that a person has to be on guard that, that if they are commute, that, that there will inevitably come a point where they will have to find new ways of communicating. And when you enter into that zone, where you have to find new ways of communicating, it won't be obvious or won't necessarily be obvious to you. But nonetheless, you, you, you're going to have to come up with new ways and creative ways to explain that which you never had to explain things before in the same way before. So now let's get back to Moshe and hitting the rock for a moment. Here Moshe has to lead a new generation right? The old generation has just finished dying out. He has to lead a new generation. Now, isn't it interesting that Hashem communicates to him in a new way? The first time Hashem said, take the stick and hit the rock. The next time for the new generation, Hashem says, take the stick and speak to the rock. Very interesting. In other words, the very instructions that Hashem gave reflects the different way that Moshe was going to have to communicate with the new generation. Okay.